There's an acronym in the world of sales that goes W-I-I-F-M. Almost sounds like a radio station in the East, right? <laughs> W-I-I-F-M. And anybody who's in sales, if they don't know this principle, they can know everything wonderful about their product, all of its qualities, but if they don't know the principle of W-I-I-F-M, they likely won't make the sale. Anybody have a guess? W-I-I-F-M? There you go. <laughs> What's in it for me? What's in it for me? You can talk about the qualities of your product. If you have a racing car, go from zero to 60 in three seconds. But if you can't tell the person that, hey, this will help you get on I-10, if it's not clogged, <laughs> really fast, and beat the traffic, then you really might not be able to make the sale. And one of the things we learn from that is that people really aren't motivated to buy something until they have somebody tell them how they're going to benefit from what they're going to acquire. And I think what you find from that is almost like a little bit of reverse of the philosopher's understanding of God, but we are moved movers. We don't move, we don't take action until we have some sense that it's going to benefit us in some way. That is not the way God is. God is called the unmoved mover. God moves in ways that come from his own being, come from the own, his own person. The impetus of his own qualities always make God to be pure act, moving forward to touch lives, to remedy situations, and to create. So I want to share a sermon with you on, uh, relating to salvation, really, on what's in it for God. What's in it for God? And I want to share with you two thoughts, and I want to deal with the calendar and this past week, we've had two events happen, really, I guess, three uh, events happen this week that are really significant to the church calendar. I've already mentioned All Saints Day, which is very significant to us, which was on Friday. Yesterday was All Souls Day, which we sort of blended All Saints and All Souls together, which I think is appropriate. And uh, yet Thursday, I don't think a lot of people realize, was Reformation Day. And it goes back to a time when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door. And some people say he didn't do that. He mailed, didn't mail. He, he, sent, he sent a letter of his 95 theses to, uh, to the archbishop of the area. And it basically sparked the Reformation. The conversation that he sparked at that point in time was not a conversation the Roman Catholic Church wanted to entertain. And so the Reformation was underway. And so what I want to do this morning is to share with you two thoughts. One about the Reformation, how God shows initiative in all things, particularly our salvation but then move to All Saints Day, where God has an inheritance in his saints, which is his reward. And first of all, the Reformation. Uh, Anglicanism, and I've been a person who's been converted to Anglicanism, and my conversion is pretty deep, I would say. I can tell you that story another time. But it's really best understood as being Reformed Catholicism. We have a lot of continuity with the historic church, the ancient church, our forms, we wear liturgy, we use liturgy, we wear vestments. We have this historic continuity of the great tradition, the great conversation through the centuries. We don't just block out a whole segment of the church and say, nothing happened. God was not at work. And so when you look at that, you say, the Reformation really was not an obliteration of those things, but it was a call to the church, to the Catholic church, to return to its theology that centered upon the initiative of God in all things. And so when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door, he was addressing a church that was vastly compromised, largely due to its relationship to uh, feudal Europe. It had a lot of power, had a lot of wealth, and it was very bent upon accumulating that wealth and maintaining its power. And Martin Luther said, 
wrong focus. <laughs> and so the selling of indulgences were taking place in his region. And he was saying, if you think that people can attain the mercy of God and attain salvation by offering money into this, this coffer, then no way. And so he wanted to start a conversation about the initiative of God in salvation and not that human beings initiate God's grace to come to them. And so he starts out with his, his revolt, and it spreads because he's so wise with the use of pamphlets, and it goes all through Europe, and basically the Catholic Church had to hear his voice. Now, the Catholic Church had progressively lost sense of this initiative of God, and I want you to hear it in Scripture, because I don't think we talk very much about that attribute of God. And to me, it's one of God's most significant attributes. It, it touches almost everything. And where do you see it in Scripture? You see it in, in the creation, that God spoke the world in resistance. Why did he do that? I can't tell you why he did it, except for the fact that God is a God of creativity who couldn't help himself but to create. And so he spoke a beautiful and complex world into existence. He also chose to create a, a representative of himself upon the earth, a human being, that he might represent God's authority and his goodness of his character, his benevolence upon the earth. And God created humanity in his image. On the th we know uh, in Genesis 3 that humanity rebelled against God and fell from the grace of God. And yet God didn't just judge them and destroy them. What did God do? God comes into the garden after the fall and he calls out, Adam, where are you? And what was he doing there? He would, he, it wasn't that he didn't know where Adam and Eve were or what had happened. He was basically asking Adam and Eve, self-identify where you are with reference to me where, how far you've fallen and what you need to do to come back. Self-identify and embrace your fallenness. And God initiated that grace. Immediately after that, God slays animals. And it doesn't say a lot about that in the text, but I think that's atonement. Uh, he says the, the, the animals were sacrificed for a covering, and that word kavar is really related to our sense of atonement. And so God was providing an atonement for sin right from the beginning, not on the initiative of the humans, but from his own grace and glory. You see God moving through history and he makes covenants with all kinds of individuals, with Noah, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with David, with Moses, and it goes through history. And God is a covenant-making God. And as he does that, he's always claiming, I want a people who will be my people. I want to be their God and they will be my possession and my people. And he initiates all those relationships. Finally, Jesus Christ comes and he provides for us a new covenant. He came of his own will. He came of God's sending. And he came to redeem all of humanity, to provide us hope of heaven. All of that is a movement of God's initiative, right? It wasn't anything that God was looking into the world that said, human beings are so wonderful, I want to go save them. Listen to Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He showed, God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. For while we were still enemies, it's getting a little bit more intense, you know, weak sinners, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so what you see going on here is the reclaiming of this initiative of God in all things, particularly our salvation. Now these issues were settled in the early church. It goes all the way back to the conversation that Augustine and Pelagius had, if you've heard of them before. But they argued over who's, who's sovereign in salvation, who initiates salvation. Augustine said, God initiates salvation. Pelagius was, I think he had a good heart in some ways, but he was, he was a little bit off. He, he's, 
he's really one of our, our British, uh, he, he came from Great Britain, so he's part of Anglicanism, I guess, in, in some sense. But anyway, uh, he, he thought that human beings could initiate this because he felt like there were a lot of people who weren't making good choices to be godly people. And so he said, you need to make choices, and you can make the choice to be godly and to be saved without the grace of God. And the church decided, no, that's not true. Human beings are sinful in their heart, and they need the initiative of God to come to them. And so the church decided very early on in its councils, in its, synod, in its synods, that orthodoxy believes that God initiates all things. And throughout the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church began to drift from that, and they needed awakening, and it came through Martin Luther. What you find going on in the Reformation is something I think that really, there's some themes there that really show up this initiative of God. And I want to just cover them very quickly to you, for you because they really remind us of our fundamental core beliefs of what we hold as Orthodox Christians who believe the Nicene Creed and hold to the great doctrines of the faith. And so let me share with you the five solas. And I, will, I would really encourage you to read all the way through Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3 on. I think verse 3 through 14, if I remember my Greek, it's one sentence. It has one primary verb, and that's that, uh, that God would be blessed for all the things that he does. And uh, I had to diagram that in Greek. Have you done that yet? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, it was a long diagram. I tell you what, if you have a diagram to sentence, uh, one sentence and four, 14 verses. But it's, it's a marvelous, rich, rich text. And it has so much in there that reminds us of our core beliefs, but it really the five solas of the Reformation come out. Sola means alone, and there are five truths that come out to the summary of the Reformation. So let me share them with you. First of all is sola gratia, grace alone, God's initiative in providing salvation. Why did God do that? Why did God send his son? Why would God you know, even experience the death on a cross? I can't even begin to really fathom that. But when you start reading through Ephesians chapter 1, you start to get some hints of what's going on. In love, he predestined us according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the universe, for the world. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so what do you hear? You hear God's will, you hear God's plan, you hear God's grace, you hear God's glory, you hear God's love. And these things are prompting God to act, to bring about the salvation of humanity. What you do not hear is how wonderful we are and how great human beings are that somehow deserve this, this merit, this favor, unmerited favor of God. And it's a gift that God gives us from his grace. There was a man in the church I was pastoring in Ohio named Manfred, and he was a foreign exchange student from Germany. And he was a typical uh, German guy, very strong in personality and uh, could get loud <laughs> in conversations, and I could get loud with him. And he wasn't a believer when he came to us, but he was very interested in the gospel, and he wanted his family to be raised in the church. And so he was coming to our church with his family, and he would always want to debate my sermons with me, wondering about this grace. And we would be talking along, and people would hear us in my office or whatever, and they would think we were fighting. <laughs> we were just, ah, I, I like a good, a good debate. And uh, anyway, he just wasn't getting it, the grace of God. And he was, he was a telemarketer. You probably don't like that, but he, he made a lot of money in telemarketing. And uh, he was walking through his office where all the telemarketers were on their phone calls. And it just, he was walking through that. He told me this story. It struck him. He said, it's a gift. It's a gift. 
And it just all of a sudden dawned on him, salvation is a gift of God. I don't have to earn this thing. And Manfred, you got it. Manfred, you got it. It's not something you can merit. It's God's grace gift to you. That's our first sola. The second one is sola Christus. If you read down through Ephesians chapter 1, you find out that God attains salvation. He procures it for us only in and through Jesus Christ. And you hear it in this language, in Christ, in him, in whom, in the beloved. And every verse from 3 through 13 includes an in him or in whom or those expressions, except for verse 8. That's how strong the emphasis is. Christ is the centerpiece of our salvation. His merit is our merit that's given to us in the grace of salvation. And his cross is that which we cling to for our hope of eternal life. And so the, the refocus again, get back to Christ, get back to the grace of God. The next two solas are sort of related to each other, and they sort of touch on how, okay, if God provides us by grace and Christ atones for us and provides salvation, well, how do we, how do we apply it to our own hearts and lives? And the third principle is sola fide, which is by faith alone. God's grace offered to us initiating faith. Now, some people might say that faith is something that we produce, that we respond. That's our response to God. And I think the proper perspective is God enables us all to respond to his grace. He's enabled all of humanity to respond. It's sort of a, an Arminian position, but I think it's accurate. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And when the word of God comes to us and it's cast into our hearts like the soils of Jesus' parable, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit begins to take that word and convince us of the truth. And all of a sudden faith begins to be birthed into our hearts. Uh, King James Version has the language of quickens. The, the seed quickens, it comes to life. And all of a sudden we realize that, ha, ah, there's, there's a great God. And it's a gift, right, as Manfred, in his expression. And all of a sudden, that, that seed that sprouts and comes to life begins to grow and starts to bear fruit 30, 60, 100-fold. And that's the picture. And it's always in correspondence. Faith is always in correspondence with the fourth sola, sola scriptura, because it is the scripture, it is the word of God that prompts faith in our hearts. When God sends us his truth, he initiates sending us truth. He knows that we can't find it on our own. We're lost. We wander. We, we are blind to truth. And God sends us the truth, and that truth uh, penetrates our hearts, and faith is born. <sighs> Alive. And I trust God and realize he's a wonderful God, a gracious God, an initiating God who's willing to save me, a sinner who needs his grace. The fourth soul, the fifth, last sola, sums it all up. Sola Soli de gloria, for the glory of God alone. I think that comes the closest to saying why God, what's in it for God? It's his glory. Everything God does is for his own glory. Creation, recreation, salvation, everything is for the glory of God. And sometimes that may sound in our hearts a little bit selfish. Oh, he does everything for his own glory. No, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that God does, and thank God he does that, <laughs> because without that, we would not have our, our salvation, our redemption in him. And so when you hear this in the book of, uh, of Ephesians chapter 1, uh, back in verse 4, verse 4 through 6, it says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, his glorious grace. Then verse 12 
so that they who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then down in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And verse 17 even says that God the Father is the Father of glory. God's glory is the center of it all. It drives God. And so when you look at this, you say, what a beautiful thing. And the summary of all of that is, we're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen? That is our faith as it centers in to this truth. And so the Reformation was a return to this great truth that God initiates our salvation. And it shows up in all these wonderful ways and uh, is for ultimately his purpose and glory. We could ask the question, what's in it for me? And Ephesians 1 tells us. Eternity. <laughs> right? What's that? Eternity. Eternity, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I have spir- it really starts off talking about all spiritual blessings. You know, all of this is ours. And the language of Ephesians 1 is adoption, redemption, forgiveness, and inheritance, salvation. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. And God himself, the kingdom of God. All of that is ours. That's what's in it for us. So when you ask the question, what's in it for God? Wow. Well, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's his glory. But I think when we look at the prayer that was offered in uh, later on, verses 17 through 19, we, st- we get a little bit more of a picture of what God rewards himself with through salvation. Now, pray- Paul prays for three things in this prayer. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know three things. What is the hope to which he's called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, the first and the third are really focused on us. He wants you to understand the hope to which he's called you, so you might understand your hope. And he also wants you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us so that power might work in our lives. But the second one is not for us. The second one relates to God, which, is, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. His glorious inheritance in the saints. I find that just an amazing thing that God would find us, his saints, to be his inheritance his possession, his prized possession that he longs for in eternity and waits for in the consummation of all things. There are some translators and commentators who really don't, want, don't like that idea in some sense because God is the unmoved mover, right? And so somehow this almost sense, how can God ever be rewarded? He owns everything. He rules everything. Everything is his possession. And yet, in some ways, uh, this passage just gives us a glimpse of how vested God is in our salvation how deeply connected he is to us as he moves towards us in his own initiative. And as you watch this work out, it's, it's a beautiful thing to me that God uh, would, would basically, I think in a sense, say, and this relates to his glory, if he shows forth mercy and grace, it gives the greatest display to God's, the fullness of God's character, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his generosity, his benevolence shows up through the salvation of sinners, perhaps in a greater way if everything had been perfect all the way through eternity. And it's like, wow, God, this is your plan? This is the greatness of your plan, that you, your counsel of your will from all eternity? And it, it shows up in the covenants where God says, Israel, you're my portion. You're my possession. And it shows up in the New Testament where we, the Christians, are God's possession. 
It shows up all the way through the covenants, as I mentioned before. I'm your God. You will be my people. You're my unique possession, my unique, peculiar people on the earth, and my wonderful possession. It shows up in the future when one day Jesus Christ, it says, will deliver us up to the Father, and he'll deliver the kingdoms up to the Father, and we'll be with him forever. But it shows up here on earth, too, because if you look at uh, various passages in the gospel, Jesus said at one time that the there's rejoicing in the presence of angels every time a sinner repents. God's saying, yeah, another one added to my possession, another one added to my glory. And God, who rejoices in the presence of the angel? It's God. God is the one rejoicing. Paul in uh, 1 Timothy talks about, uh, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And that's his testimony. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Not only are we God's possession in the future, we're God's trophy and shining uh, example of God's grace right now on earth, that God would save us. And as you go forth in this world, you're shining trophies and uh, examples. God can save you. I guess he could save me. <laughs> right? It's, it's a way we go into the world in our humility and our gratefulness and thankfulness for all that God has done for us. So my thought as I conclude is, is, is this sentence. God is a God of initiative who through the drama of redemption has brought about a revelation of his own glorious grace. And this glorious grace shows up most fully in the redemption of sinners, the salvation which the triune God alone has brought and which provides his own glorious inheritance, his greatest possession and glory, and his trophy for all eternity. Wow. I have two responses. I offer to you in response to this message. First one, wow. Wow. say wow with me. Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, it should, it should just be an explanation from us, right? Wow. That is the grace and goodness of God. And so revel in what's in it for you. God wants you to. But also be amazed and awed and humbled by what it is, what's in it for God. We get God in his kingdom. He gets us. <laughs> That's humbling. <laughs> I think we're the, we get the better part, part of that equation, right? And so we have that sense, awe. But also, learn to imitate God and be people of initiative. God is about the business of transforming our lives and changing us in, into new creatures so that we become people who have an, an inherent love and goodness within us as he transforms us so that as we go into the world, we move not by what's in it for me, we're no longer motivated by that. We're moving by what God is doing in our hearts so that God's love and the goodness and the benevolence of God flows through us to others. So what does that look like? We take the initiative when we see broken relationships and broken people and broken churches. We manifest this in our homes and in our workplace and in the church. We don't just pass by people who are broken and hurting but we move toward them, taking the initiative that God does, filling those gaps, moving to places where his healing and goodness need to be shown. And there's no standing back. No standing back, waiting for someone else to take the initiative. Because we always move. And it's kind of interesting, the gospel, Jesus said, if you're offended, go, make it right. If somebody's offended you, go, make it right. Yeah. When do you take the initiative? In both situations, whether you've been offended or you're the offender, go. Would it be like God? to be people initiative. 
servants of his in the world, witnesses to, to the goodness and the grace of God, and all for his glory and the praise of his glorious grace. Let me pray for us. Father, seal amazement in our hearts today that we might glory in your salvation that comes through grace through Jesus Christ that's revealed in your scripture. May you receive all the glory and praise as we come to you and worship you throughout this service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.